Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to call in the helping spirits to gather around us here today. I call out to our ancestors. I call out to all of those who bring that which is good and true and beautiful in your ancestral line and in mine. I call out to those who bring the legacy. It is their shoulders on which we stand. It is their bones on which we stand. We are here today because they dreamt of a future. May we understand that we are the answer to that dream, and at the same time, we are dreamers. So we call out the ancestors to be with us here today, that we might learn from those who have gone before us, that we might learn from their mistakes to heal, to forgive, to innovate, to go on in new ways that allow humanity to expand into its greatest and fullest potential. So we call out to these ancestors to be with us here today that we might understand. We call out to that most ancient and wondrous ancestor, the earth. We give thanks to her for home, for connection, for interconnection, for belonging. And we give thanks for the miracle of life and take a moment today to recognize you are part of that miracle. Are you living in a way that expresses that miracle to others? This is what we ask the earth to help us to understand how to be manifest in form in a good way how to live in a way that brings miracles to others' lives and to our own, and how to be here in a way that shows an understanding of the profound interconnectedness of everything. So we give thanks to the earth for all that has been that has brought us to this moment, for this moment and for all that will be. We stand firmly here on the ground, feet planted, and open up our hearts and our minds and our energy to rise all the way up to the highest power in the sky. And by whatever name you call that power, far and wide, call it down. We call in the energy of blessing and generosity and protection into our circle here today. We call in illumination and inspiration. We ask these energies to come down from the energy of the sky, from the highest power in the universe. We ask this energy to come down and merge with the energy of the earth within us. This, this great, great love affair that has spawned all life is this dance between heaven and earth, earth and sky. This great, great love affair that transcends all love affairs that has given birth to life. Let us know that we are the expression of that love, of these two energies. And so let's call out to the energy of the heart. And may the heart open up here today to receive within each one of you to receive your own passions that burn deep in your belly and the wisdom and clarity and inspiration of your mind and draw these energies together in the heart. Let the passions rise up and the clarity move down into the heart where it is merged, where they come together and we come to understand not only what are we here to do, but how to do those things in a way that is good for all living things. So we call out to these energies to all be with us here today that we might hear what needs to be heard and speak what must be spoken. 
We give thanks to all of you that who have donated to make this show possible. Your dollars keep this show on the air and keep it free to people all over the world who have access to computers or iPods or whatever to listen to these um, podcasts or the show live. So we give thanks to you. I give thanks especially to um, Tibor and all of those listeners who, have, listeners who have donated recently. If this show or any of the shows are meaningful to you, if it gives you anything that allows you to be a better person, inspires you in any way, I ask you to consider donating to express that gratitude because it, because it is in our willingness to move into a way of being together where we move, we allow the energy of the heart to move us. So if you are moved by the show, allow yourself to move to give some energy back so that this show continues to be available for other people. And so I give thanks to you who come to understand this most profound act of shamanism, which is the movement of the heart energies through our own lives and out into the world to give and receive these energies as a constant flow. And for those of you who are wondering how you might do that, you can go to the whyshamanismnow.com website and click on the support button. You're, you are free to give any amount, large or small. Every single dollar is um, deeply appreciated, and it all goes straight to keeping the show available to you on the air. So welcome, everyone, to today's show. Today's topic is what is a shaman? And we are live today, and you are welcome to call in. Um, or Skype in. Um, the easiest way to do that is from the co-creatornetwork.com site. Um, the number is 512-772-1938. Um, or you are welcome to email me at Christina, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A, Christina at lastmaskcenter.org. L-A-S-T-M-A-S-K-C-E-N-T-E-R, lastmaskcenter.org. So what is a shaman? Mm, a very good question. Anthropologists and other scholars continue to disagree. <laughs> they have not yet come to agreement on what is the criteria that defines a shaman. Um, other than the basic agreement that it somehow has something to do with mastery of altered states of consciousness. And of course, what does that mean? So there are broad uh, definitions of shamans and very narrow definitions of shamans and mid-range definitions from shamans. And they are all over throughout all of the literature. But what is interesting to me is understanding shamanisms from the perspective not that establishes someone's thesis or their PhD work, but what allows us to understand shamans as they work in their own environment. And in doing so, how does that support contemporary shamans in their very contemporary struggle of practicing today in cultures that are no longer shamanic? That, to me, is the interesting question. So let's explore the working definition for today. So a shaman is a specific type of healer who uses a trance state or altered state of consciousness to enter the invisible world. Okay, so now we've already got questions about all of these words, right? Trance state, altered state of consciousness, invisible world, what does all of this mean? Well, an alternate state of consciousness is a state of consciousness other than the one you wander around in most of the day that helps you remember to go pick up the milk and drive the car on the correct side of the street, depending on what country you're in, and remember the name of your loved ones. You know, that's an ordinary state of consciousness. And what we 
have access to as humans is a huge range of altered states of consciousness. We enter them through yogic states. We enter them through meditative states. We enter them through artistic states. We enter them through pharmaceutically induced states. We enter them through dance, chanting, um, you know, action-based states, that huge, huge range of altered states of consciousness. And they are not all shamanic. They are all altered, but they are not all shamanic. So what we're looking at is a specific type of healer who uses a very narrow range of altered states, profoundly deep altered states, but a narrow range. And what is characteristic about this range of altered states is that they are task-oriented. They are not enlightenment-oriented. They are not dissolving into the universe-oriented. They are task-oriented. Okay, so that's the important thing. And in that altered state, the shaman is connected with um, beings or presences or spirits, for lack of a better word, in the invisible world. So the invisible world is made up of all of the aspects of our world that we cannot see with or know with our five senses. So this is what we would generally call spiritual, but it is also emotional, uh, mental, psychological, mythical, archetypal, dream, the dream world, and many, many realms that aren't even human realms. These, these are all parts of the invisible world. So even if you don't put a whole lot of stake in the idea of spirits, in the idea of God, for example. Maybe you don't really believe there's anything but this time, this one life, and that you don't even necessarily believe in souls or spirit. That's fine. Shamanism still works because as a human, you have an emotional life and a mental life which is invisible. The only part of you that's visible here in the physical world is your physical body and the biological processes that occur within it. So whether, whether you don't believe in spirit or do believe a little too much in spirit, shamanism still functions because it's not about professing a religious belief system, but it's about practically speaking, how do I as a practitioner enter into an appropriate altered state of consciousness with control over myself so I can stay focused on my task and get the job done? Whatever that job might be, healing for a person, for a community, for the land, that I can get that job done in a way that is efficient and effective energetically. So that's a shaman, basically. So the shaman is the practitioner who enters into these altered states of consciousness. Once in the invisible world, the shaman makes a change in the energy found there in such a way that it directly affects the needed change here in the physical world. Um, for example, clearing the energies uh, left on a battlefield, the human energies, the blood energies that have drained into the earth on a battlefield, that's a shamanic, that can be a shamanic healing. It's not necessarily just moving people. Uh, I'm sorry, moving soul parts. It can be for the land. Um, it can be for elemental energies. That There are many challenges that manifest here in the physical world that the source of that challenge is in the invisible world and that we're never going to get the relief that is needed here that is good for living things here in the physical world without addressing the source of the problem in the invisible world. So that's what it means by saying that the shaman makes a change in the invisible world. For example, finally locating a soul part 
negotiating with that soul part, convincing that soul part to return, and then grabbing it and bringing it back so that it finds its way back and putting that soul part into the body of the living person it belongs in. That's a typical shamanic healing. There's a change being made in the invisible world to affect the change here, the desired change here in the physical world, which is wholeness, um, freedom from addiction, whatever it is that the person is asking for. It can go the other way as well, that maybe the living here are concerned about the state of being of the soul of someone who has died. And so the shaman's job is also to locate that spirit energy as it's maybe stuck here in the physical world, the invisible aspect of the physical world, and to convey that spirit energy on along the journey out of the land of the living here and into the spirit world where it can ultimately make its way to the land of the dead, where dead people belong. So either way, the point is the shaman is taking action in non-ordinary reality, in the invisible world, with intent, with task orientation to make a specific shift for what's going on here in the physical world. That, that the shift in the invisible, invisible world is being done to make things here in the physical world better for all living things. Okay. So one of the challenges then would be something like weather. Um, weather, affecting the weather is a traditional, very, very traditional job of a shaman, especially shamans whose gifts are in the elemental energies and gifted with um, powerful um, weather energy. And the problem with that, of course, is that the weather that is good for today's soccer game may not be the best for all living things in the environment, especially if you're in a drought situation. And so weather... um, Magic, for lack of a better word, has become a challenging practice for shamans because what is good for all living things is complicated these days because humanity has a lot of ideas about what's good for humanity that's not necessarily in um, uh, alignment or resonance or sort of co-relationship with other living things. So anyway... Back to what is a shaman. So we have this practitioner who enters altered states of consciousness, works with the invisible world there to create a change here. So the important thing is that the shaman learns what energy needs to change and how to change it. In other words, the shaman diagnoses and, de- and it determines the remedy through direct contact with the spirit world. And that's really important distinction of a shaman. In other words, if five people show up with exactly the same symptoms, a shaman is not going to assume that they have the same problem. A shaman is still going to diagnose what is the actual problem that these physical symptoms are expressing and what is the remedy for this person. Whereas a medicine person, would look at the physical symptoms and, you know, tune in intuitively to what the source of the problem is for the person, but would very likely give the person, the five people with the same symptoms, very similar herbs or plants to work with their um, healing problem. And there's nothing wrong with that. They're, they're not better or worse approaches. 
They are simply different approaches because one practitioner is a medicine person who's working with the plants to dispense the medicine and one person is a shaman who is working in the invisible world to determine whether or not the source of the problem is in the invisible world. Um, so it's important to realize that shamanism, uh, the practice of shamanism is a system of questions. It's not a system of answers. And most healing forms are a system of answers. In other words, um, traditional Chinese medicine has a certain system of answers that involve acupuncture and herbs, and it's beautiful and effective. Um, North American um, herb craft is different. It's a different, um, a different plants, different application of those plants. The very same plants are different in different places because they're drawing on different land, different nutrients in the land. So we need to, if we want to really understand functionally what a shaman is, we, we need to open up to understanding what all healers are, what healing is. And, and, one of the main things we need to step away from is turf and turf wars and wanting to be the shaman and wanting uh, egoically to make the definition fit a certain thing versus looking at shamanism globally and coming to understand practically and functionally what are we talking about when we talk about shamans? Who are they? How do they function in the world? And um, what makes them uniquely who they are, and as we understand uniquely what a shaman is, it helps us to understand then uniquely how that practitioner fits in with other practitioners, which is what shamans have traditionally done, is functioned in the world in um, co-creating healing with other practitioners in their Environment, whether it's working with other leaders in terms of creating ceremony for the people or whether it's working with other healers um, like, like plant medicine people or someone who's particularly good working with anything. I mean, there's some really unique practitioners in the past and today who have very unique skills. And the beauty of shamanic cultures is those skills are usually developed. So you get someone who does some amazing healing with stones. Like I don't, I don't mean crystals. I mean like regular river stones, and that's that person's gift. And and so part of understanding shamanism and understanding healing in a new way is understanding that people's gifts um, not only need to be expressed in their lives, but that with that we see many, many different kinds of healers. And that just because someone has a unique and, and interesting healing form and we don't know what to call it, doesn't mean we should call those people shamans, which is partly what's happened in the United States. You know, if we don't know what to call it, we call it shamanism. Well, that's not helping. It's not helping us understand who these people are and what they do. Okay, so we were talking about shamans and diagnosis and remedy. And so the helping spirits that shamans work with are essentially coherent energy patterns, as I've said before. But as you know, that's not very sexy and it doesn't make a lot of sense to people. But the point is the helping, uh, helping spirits of shamans are the same energy that shows up again and again and again. So just like you go to work and you have a work group and it's the same people every day, 
when shamans work with helping spirits, those helping spirits they've cultivated their relationship with, and in particular their initiatory relationship with, and then the helping spirits that teach them how they're going to heal, these helping spirits are consistent. It's their work group. It's the same beings every time they show up. That doesn't mean... Uh, for example, in a normal day for me working with clients that I don't also work with the helping spirits of the people, which is kind of fun because they get to work with helping spirits I don't normally see, but it's not random. It's not like that person standing on the corner talking to a whole bunch of invisible things that you and I can't see. That's not shamanism, right? So the shaman is doing diagnosis and remedy by having direct contact with the spirits where the spirit world where the spirits are consistent presences in their life they just happen to be in the invisible part of life and and depending on the culture or the shaman those helping spirits could be animals they could be plants they could be um, spirits of the geography for example in um, Quechua shamanism shamanism people uh, go to many, many people go and study in Peru. Um, they do a huge amount of work with the mountains. So in the Amazon, they work with the Amazon, with the river. Um, and, and, and river shamans are, are much more like other river shamans in the world than they are like their counterparts, you know, right next door up in the mountain above. And mountain shamans are very like mountain shamans around the world and not remotely like prairie shamans. And so it's important to understand that shamanism is largely shaped by the the land by the geography and by the strong presence presences that are found there in the land helping spirits that shamans work with are also ancestors um and sometimes ancestors is interpreted very literally as in bloodline and sometimes as you heard john lockley talking about ancestors is interpreted as ancestors as all of the energies that came before us in the dream and how all of those energies from the elements, the, the pure elements, earth, air, fire, and water, you know, dreamt and created universes, which created galaxies, which created stars, which created um, solar systems, which created planets and planets dreamt and created life and understanding that sense of ancestor all the way back to grandfather fire. Um, so, so this sense then of ancestors as really being everything, that everything is our ancestors. And in a sense, all that is coming is our descendants. It's not about my personal bloodline descendants, but about the descendants and my relationship with the ancestors. Not necessarily so um, delineated around bloodline, but it can be depending on the culture. Many cultures work with deities gods, goddesses, um, or uh, simply elemental energies in their environment. Uh, mythical beasts also show up as helping spirits. Um, anyway, uh, many, many forms. Sometimes the helping spirit itself is formless. Yeah, the kung speak of an energy that rises up through the dance within them. It's a very specific energy that's accessed through the dance that becomes available then for healing. And... Um, other cultures speak of an energy that is um, has a name that's largely untranslatable into English because the very concept that there is something that created God, that there's something before the creator, that there's, there's something that is the deeper essence of all things, 
we don't even have English words to translate that concept because our concept is our language is so shaped by our Judeo-Christian belief system. So my point is simply that shamans are working with these energies in the invisible world and that they have cultivated deep, um, long-standing and not necessarily traditional but intimate uh, loving relationships with these helping spirits and that these are the spirits that they work with to do their shamanic work. And it is that direct contact with the spirits and the use of altered states, not just daydreaming, but induced altered states. Shamanic altered states are induced. They're not, it's not just a meditation. It's induced by the, the repetition of the drum, singing or chanting, plant hallucinogens. You know, something is used to drive that altered state, to move that person's consciousness beyond where they would go on their own. So the shaman is the person then who has direct contact with these spirits and moves into a shamanic altered state. And that is what distinguishes shamans from other practitioners. Uh, so all of this is accurate i mean as best as i can tell Um, but what we need to understand is that practically speaking not really academically speaking but practically speaking the shaman is an artist and this is why we have such a hard time really understanding who the shamans are the shaman is not someone who is simply repeating what they were taught by their teachers without any inspiration, without any illumination, without any deeper, richer, unique expression coming through their relationship with spirit, that the shamanism is an art and that the shaman is an artist and that the shaman's true high art is ritual and that the shaman's medium for working and creating and crafting the shaman's art is the invisible world. What a shaman does is a creative process. Every time a shaman begins a healing ritual, no matter how small or large, it is an act of creation. It is an improvisation with the energies of the invisible world, with the helping spirits that they find there. As I said, the shaman's art, the shaman's work is a system of questions, not a system of answers. And so The shaman's ritual then is an act of creation. It's an improvisation with the energies of the invisible world. And though procedures may be similar, the actual ritual created is never the same twice. It is inherently created. It it is the inherently creative nature of shamanism that makes exact definitions of the shaman problematic. In other words, I do thousands of soul retrievals a year. Every single soul retrieval, though the procedure itself is very similar every time, is entirely different because of what the spirits take me to, what I find for the individual, how that uh, energy is negotiated with to return, how it's returned, and then what the person will need to do to integrate that is unique and different every time. Not just person to person, but for the same person, each soul part is different. Each process is different. The ritual act of healing that is crafted is created uniquely on the spot each moment. So when we come back around today to talking about how do you pick a shaman, 
This is one of the most critical things to understand. You need a shaman who is an artist, not someone who's just repeating what they were told in a workshop. Because in the invisible world, things are very strange. They're never the same twice. There is no class, no teacher, no one that could teach another person what to expect every single time. What, what a shaman learns to do is more like contact improv is to dance, is to go into that journey state to ask the correct questions that are going to illuminate the answers necessary to solve the problem that's being presented in the physical world. There are far too many practitioners out there that cannot tell the difference between a soul part, um, chakra energy, body part energy, um, psychological energy, archetypal energy, and we're capable of losing all those energies. But what's important to understand is you need a, sh- a shamanic practitioner who is able in the moment, in the altered state, to discern the distinction between these energies, to clarify that and effectively get these energies back to you. So the retrieval process is just one example. But the point that I'm making is every single altered state, uh, every single experience in the altered state is different. It is always a creative experience and no one should work with a shamanic practitioner who is not capable of that improvisation of of moving with what is shown um, determining the question that may be entirely different than what the person thought was going to have to happen and to respond to what is found there in the spirit world what the true source of the problem is with creativity and innovation and the inspiration that comes through the direct uh, relationship with spirit so this you know because that is is critical is the critical piece of what really makes a shaman a shaman it's really hard to to define that to to make a list of criteria that then define who a shaman is so you know to do that doesn't really explain how shamans create powerful rituals that mend our souls any more than describing how a painter paints explains how some painters are able to make art that's incredibly moving incredibly powerful incredibly meaningful and that endures over time so it's very much the same challenge so what is interesting to me and so what i am talking about here today is how do we understand shamans and their work in a way that we can see how it is the shaman is able to create rituals that mend our souls not so much the criteria of what that ritual looked like here in the physical world but who was that shaman that allowed them to operate in the invisible world where we couldn't see what was going on and to create on the spot an effective ritual of healing. And so what's important is that we need to, I mean, if we're talking today about, you know, who's a shaman, what makes a shaman a shaman, we need to differentiate shamans from other practitioners who also use altered states of consciousness but don't necessarily heal their clients. Um, and then we also need to do differentiate practitioners who heal their clients but do not use altered states of consciousness to do that and again the differentiation isn't to say who's better or who's worse Uh, the differentiation is to say is to understand what's what so 
so that I, as a consumer of healing experiences, could say, this is my problem. What type of practitioner do I go to to assist me with that? Um, so that's why it's important to differentiate these practitioners, not, again, because it's for people are better or worse, but because shamans always existed um, uh, together with other kinds of practitioners in their communities. Um, you know, and one of the things that, you know, is just kind of crazy about the books that you can read about shamanism that have been published is often people have a very broad definition of shaman. So something like someone who uses an altered state of consciousness with their helping spirits to win at traditional um, games of chance, because like the North American people had many different games of chance um, in their traditional, you know, what do you do at the end of the day to um, entertain yourselves kind of time. And they had lots of games of chance and you won if you could get your helping spirits to give you the information that would allow you to succeed. It's kind of like being able to read other card players' cards in poker. And, you know, my perspective is it's delightful that someone has a great relationship with their helping spirits and is able to use that uh, to win at these games of chance. But that doesn't make them a shaman. It makes them a person who's really got a really good relationship with their helping spirits and is winning at a game of chance. I mean – the fact that we can enter altered states does not make us a shaman. The fact that we have a relationship with helping spirits does not make us a shaman. It makes us human. Because from a shamanic perspective, every adult is meant to have a working relationship with spirit. And if you want to go use your working relationship with spirit to win at those games of chance, you know, that was a cultural norm in North America. So go for it. But it doesn't make you a shaman. So... So shamans then one of the one of the ideas that's out there about shamans is uh that's been propagated in the literature is that the true classic quote unquote form of shamanism involves something called spirit flight. And spirit flight is what is now commonly called journeying. And journeying, we've talked about many times on the show, but journeying is the experience of the shaman's uh, um, journey self. It's like the you that's wandering around in your dreams at night. So that self to go intentionally out into the invisible world, diagnose, remedy, change what needs to be changed, and come back. Okay, that's the journey. It, w- it has been called in the literature spirit flight and was for many years. It was also pointed, um, made, you know, Many academics have made a big deal about that as being the classic form of shamanism. And I think what's important to realize is that it's not our place as white uh, Eurocentric people to define classic shamanism. That shamanism is a gift of humanity that's practiced on every continent all around the globe and everybody's shamanism is equally valid. No one's shamanism is degenerate. No one's shamanism is less classic than anybody else's. And so if we really want to understand shamanism as a human phenomenon, as a gift given by spirit to humanity, which is, by the way, how we got shamanism. Well, it's actually how we got cultures. From a shamanic perspective, if you listen to the stories, the oral traditions, that in the beginning, well, not the beginning, beginning, but at a certain point, 
humanity is no longer in communication with the plant world, with the animal world, with the spirit world. And humanity is frankly killing itself. Can't figure out how to function. Sounds a little bit like today, but I digress. So humanity is having a hard time figuring out how to live in a good way in the world. And humanity is fighting and dying and dying off. And a spirit takes pity on the humans because we have so much potential. And so a spirit takes pity on us and comes back and teaches us how to live in a good way. Teaches us how to grow whatever the primary foods are in that environment. Teaches us how to enter altered states, whatever the way to do that is in that environment. And teaches us the, the morality and the ethics, the principles by which we need to live so that all things will thrive. So that humanity, the humans, will thrive in that environment with the plants and animals and all the other energies of that environment. That spirit or that spirit person, it's sometimes... Um, half human, half spirit. But anyway, that person is the first shaman in every lineage. And that first shaman taught the people how to live. So who are we to say anybody's shamanism is more classic than anybody else's when everybody's shamanism taught them how to live at, at one point in time, somewhere on every continent on the planet? So what's important for us to understand then if we embrace shamanism as a gift to humanity is that journeying or spirit flight is as much one of the primary altered states that the shaman works in as embodiment trance states are. Because you have huge continents full of people whose shamanism is every bit as classic as anybody else's, in Africa and Asia in particular, where the primary altered state the shaman enters into is inviting the helping spirit, not random spirits, again, not like that person on the street corner who's talking to a whole bunch of invisible things and it's not helping their life out at all. But this is a shaman who's cultivated a long-term, intimate, energetically powerful relationship with spirit, and that helping spirit is invited into the shaman's body to work through the shaman, and that is an embodiment trance state, and that is every bit as classic a trance state in shamanism as spirit flight is. And honestly, frankly, practically speaking, not, again, not speaking from the perspective of I want to, um, what's that, defend my PhD. Not speaking from an academic perspective, not speaking as a Westerner who wants to support the superiority of my religious perspective but speaking from a person who's really curious about how shamanism actually works. Speaking from that place then, what we see is that the shaman's altered states are equally spirit flight and embodiment and the everyday practicing shaman, be they traditional or cultural or contemporary that they all move back and forth between these altered states. They may spend more time in one than another. They may go deeper into one than another. But to get the job done, to get the traditional job done that is brought to the shaman, the practitioner must move in spirit flight and then into a little bit of embodiment, back and forth, sometimes deeply into one, sometimes not so deeply in another. But that is what it takes to do the work. And so my sense of any reasonable, practical, effective definition of shaman is going to speak to the shaman's capacity not only to move into the spirit world to communicate 
with their helping spirits, but also to enter into a trance state here and invite their helping spirits to join them here in the physical world. And so this is what's important to understand about shamanism as a human experience. And so ultimately then at the core of any definition about shaman is that capacity for the practitioner to control themselves in those altered states. And so that, of course, is the distinction between the practitioner and that person on the corner talking to all the invisible creatures wandering by who is not able to take care of themselves or anyone else. That the distinction is that person may be in an altered state, but they are not in control of themselves. And they are not able to discern. And this is another critical piece of what control actually means, that 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 the shaman is not in control of the spirits. The shaman is control of themselves and capable in that altered state to go as deeply as is called for and to discern what's what. To discern what is going on and how does what is going on translate into a diagnosis and a remedy for what is needed in the physical realm. So that's enough about that. Um, so what I wanted to talk about, because we got this really interesting um, que- comment from a listener. And so where this leads us then, you know, if we look at, if we define shaman in this humanity-based way. So we're looking at shamanism and the shaman as a gift to humanity from the spirit world then we need to embrace the diversity of all of the cultures that have shamans. And that, you know, and isn't how do we embrace diversity the question of the day? How do we make the space big enough for everybody in their uniqueness and have it still be meaningful? How do we discern then these shamans amongst all these other types of healers and just particular cultural definitions. You know, how do we become sane about all of this? So an example is we've discussed vegetalistas on this show who are people or ayahuascaros who are, who are people who work traditionally in, in Central and South America with the plants and that they, their specialty, they are specialists with the plants themselves, not so much the medicine person. Um, herbal preparation when you think of the traditions of working with the herbs on any continent actually, European, North America, Chinese medicine, whatever you're talking about, that this is more working with the um, the plants that allow us to enter altered states and being in good relationship with those spirits and assisting other people and other practitioners other shamans in working with these very, very powerful plant medicines so we've talked about those on the show and they're, you know, often described as shamans and sometimes not. And this is, this is a place where we get into those distinctions around is the person using the altered states to do the healing work? Because traditionally that is the shaman, the person who's doing the healing work of the people or the place or the community. And Often when we're talking about these specialists, they're people the shaman in many ways couldn't live without, but 
Um, on the other hand, they may or may not be shamans. I think what's important as we make these distinctions is to recognize, to decide, for example, that some ayahuasquero isn't a shaman does not diminish that person's specialty, their gifts, their power, their excellence at all. To be the shaman isn't the bee's knees. You know, it's not the best thing. It's as John Lachlan was saying, it's a hard job and people in South Africa try to dissuade their children away from it. I mean, we, we've developed, particularly in America, and I'll stand up for that. I think Americans are really driving this, this incredible desire to be identified as the shaman, as if being the shaman is the most powerful thing out there. And what we need to sober up about is that that desire to be the shaman is being motivated by something other than a call to shamanism. Because an authentic calling to shamanism is almost always met reluctantly. But the deeper point that I'm trying to make is that being the shaman in any better than being the ayahuasquero or the medicine person or the traditional Chinese you know, acupuncturist doctor or for that matter, a really great heart surgeon. I mean, can we all get real about this, people? Can we all dial down about the whole, I want to be a shaman thing, I'm the shaman, ooh, the shamans are better than everybody else thing that's really coming out of America and understand that shamans fit in with other practitioners whom they regard as equally powerful, differently gifted, but equally important in maintaining the well-being of the people. And that is, of course, the most important thing is how do we maintain the well-being of the people? And how do we maintain that well-being in a way that is good for all other living things? Okay, so as I said, we got this comment from a listener from Raphael who says that there's a shamanic tradition in Romania, Europe. The roots of this tradition are Russian. In fact, the view of this tradition is that shamans and curandero healers are different, but the general public does not know. So that was Raphael's message. So first off, we need to acknowledge this uh, minefield I've already been tap dancing in already for 45 minutes, is that we must acknowledge the problem with words. Uh, For example, I've been saying shaman, shaman, shaman. I'm an English-speaking person. We don't even have a word for this type of healer I'm trying to define. We seem, generally speaking, the English-speaking world seems to have adopted shaman uh, instead of any other of the many words used to define the shaman in different cultures. Because every culture that has shamans has a word for that in their own culture. So then the question we need to look at is then what, what does someone mean when they use the word shaman or they use the word curandero or they use the word ayahuasquero or they use any of these words when we can't even decide what shaman means? And frankly, it's maybe not even really our job to do it since we didn't invent the word in the first place. But you see my point is that we have trouble uh, here we have to be very careful with words. I was doing um, a talk at um, a conference, and I was talking about 
shamans and gender variants was the topic. And this question came out from the audience. How can you talk about these shamans as good things? I've been working with female genital mutilation in Africa, and it's the shamans that told them to do that. Well, a little bit off topic, although it's an important issue. But my main uh, issue with the whole statement is who really said what and what was their role in the community. And so was, was the person who brought that ritual of female genital mutilation forward really a shaman? Um, who were they? What was going on? What was the context it was happening in? I mean, we have to be very careful with words because let's say maybe the person was right. Maybe it was the shamans of that particular culture that brought that horrible ritual forward that is, you know, creating awful problems today in the world. Granted, but that doesn't mean every shaman around the globe says the same thing. And so I guess what I'm just asking people to do is grow up. Think intelligently about these words and, frankly, what is a shortage of words to discuss these topics. Because one of the other things that I noticed in researching for the encyclopedia is that in shamanic cultures, they have a whole bunch of words. Just like Eskimos having a ton of words for snow, and here in the Pacific Northwest, we have a thousand words for rain. When you've got this stuff in abundance in your culture, you have lots and lots of words for it to define all the different variations. And that's what I would like us to get back to a place of being able to understand. It's how does shaman as one kind of healer fit into the vast variety of, of practitioners, of healers, that the world offers us today, that humanity offers us today. So the first, first challenge we have with Raphael's you know, comment, which I deeply appreciate the comment, is just the problem with words. Because there's also a whole lot of shamans spread across Siberia who would be probably pretty pissed off about these traditions being called Russian. Since the Soviet Union, which is pretty much identified with Russia, did a really good job of suppressing shamanism, um, forcing it underground, taking people's drums and costumes, which are critical power objects for the practice of many different Siberian um, cultures um, and their shamanism. And so there's another you know, challenge there with the language. And, and believe me, I'm not pointing fingers at the Soviet Union because there are obviously colonizing and dominating forces on every continent that went in and wiped out their shamans and learned from people who colonized other continents how to do it even better. So the point is the roots of shamanism in Siberia are take a pick. Is it Tuvan? You know, is it Mongolian? You know, what, what culture are we talking about? Because there, there are many, many shamanic cultures in Siberia. Across, I mean, because Siberia is a big place. I mean, that whole region of the planet, it's huge. It's just like North America. You can't talk about North American shamanism. You can't. There's too many different people with vastly diverse shamanic cultures. So the point, though, that Raphael is making, I think, is a valid point, which is that shamans and curanderos are different kinds of healers. Absolutely. And Raphael... 
I think that in the public that knows about shamanism, more people understand that than you'd think. An encyclopedia of shamanism has been out there for years now. Many people own it and have read it, and it certainly professes that idea that shamans are a, ki- a type of healer, type of traditional healer, um, amongst many different kinds of traditional healers. But it, it, it's just important that we are careful with words. And the other thing I love about this comment from Raphael is that he says the general public does not know. Well, Raphael, bless your heart, but in America, the general public doesn't know anything about shamanism at all, much less the distinction between a shaman and a curandero. And I would love it if the general public in, on the planet, if the general public in all cultures was having this discussion as to whether or not a shaman and a curandero were the same, because it would mean that the general public was actually engaging in a much more enlightened uh, conversation about healing and health then I certainly experience walking the streets in America where we actually have advertisements on the TV that say, I feel confident about my health. I feel healthy because I have good health insurance. That's ridiculous. So anyway, um, but I, I thank Raphael though for the comment because it really sparked in many ways this particular show and to talk about, um, you know, so what is a shaman and who is a shaman and how do they fit in with other practitioners? So the other thing in this whole um, kettle of fish of defining who is the shaman is understanding that in particular cultures, the cultural definition of the shaman um, involves something that is not true in other shamanic cultures. For example, you simply cannot be a shaman deep in the Amazon, whether you're Shuar or Ashwar or whatever else. If you're in the Amazonian region and you are a shaman, you, cannot, you are not considered a shaman unless you work with the plants. In other cultures, those would be, you would be considered a shaman and a medicine person. You know, it's one of those things. Cultures get to define their people the way they want to. We just need to learn from it, and part of it is to understand, you know, an Amazonian shaman will, will, will need to do both, all of the skills of the shaman and all of the skills of pl- the plant medicine person in that region, whereas somewhere else, like an Inuit shaman or some shaman up around the Arctic Circle anywhere on any continent, they're not going to be working that much with the plants because there aren't that many plants, but boy, do those people do some kick-ass journeys. I mean, serious spirit flight as Iliadi would say. So, you know, it, it varies culture to culture what really defines someone as the shaman in the culture. But we need to understand as people who have access to many cultures how to suss that out, how to determine one practitioner from another and to allow what I would call traditions to define their own shamans. Just like the Amazonian shamans get to say their shamans have to work with plant medicines. That's, that's their right. If you are a cultural shaman, which I would see as someone who comes from one culture and learns deeply, becomes initiated in the shamanism of a different culture. Like uh, we spoke with Gretchen Crilly McKay and John Lockley, who are both you know, white people who are initiated in um, African traditions and South African traditions of shamanism, in the Zulu traditions in particular, um, for Gretchen. And, um, or even Stephen Baer, who doesn't even identify in the world as a shaman, but is deeply trained in um, 
through traditions in the cultures that he's worked with. And so here you have these people from one culture who've gone to another and studied for a decade or more. And through that study, through that traditional training, become the shaman. And then, or not, in Stephen's case, uh, not deciding to identify as that in the world. And then you have a third kind of contemporary shaman who is simply a contemporary shaman, who is a contemporary person who has had an initiatory experience and is working with the spirit world directly and is doing shamanic healing work um, as defined, um, entering through the altered state into the invisible world, making changes of what needs to happen there to affect the change we want here in the physical world and doing so in a way that brings healing and benefit to the people or the land or the community. So there are people who, who are doing their best to function outside of tradition and outside of culture and yet within the human tradition of shamanism. And so that brings us around to the final point, which is a big point to end on here today is given all of that then, what is most important for us to understand that what defines the shaman, whether it's in the tradition or culturally or just as a contemporary practitioner, is the initiatory experience, is that relationship with the spirit world that reaches in and causes the person that you were or puts you in a situation in which you must allow the person that you were to die so that the shaman self with inside of you is born and is free and unfettered by the drama that um, is tied to what happened to you in your family of origin. And this fundamental transformation that occurs in that initiation is critical, whether you're a traditional shaman or a cultural shaman or a spontaneous contemporary shaman. And so for you all out there, how do you pick a shaman? You pick a shaman who is either traditional, cultural, or contemporary shaman who has been initiated one way or another. And I suggest you don't work with people who just give you a list of workshops that they've taken. That's not initiation any more than me going off to Nepal and experiencing traditional initiatory rituals in Nepal initiated me. It didn't. My own experiences initiated me. I learned a lot in Nepal, but I'm not a Nepalese shaman. So, so when you pick a shaman, pick someone who's initiated. And why are you even looking for a shaman? Because for so many of you, so many of your strife, stresses, and challenges in life would be transformed if you develop your relationship with spirit. Learn to journey yourself. Develop your own direct connection with spirit. I'm teaching people in Portland, Oregon this weekend. Easy as can be. Learn to develop your own relationship with spirit. And learn the energy practices that will allow you to maintain your energy body. And stop acting practitioners, whether they're shamans or not. Stop asking them to heal things in you that you are meant to take care of yourself. So I encourage you to be discerning as you select your shamans. But even more than that... Be discerning within yourself. Are you stepping up to your own challenges of being an energetic person living in an energetic world and connected to these energetic beings that want to be there and assist you? So thank you all for joining me here today. I hope I haven't simply confused the issue further. 
I want to thank the ancestors for being with us here today, for gathering around, and for holding on to these deep traditions for us that we might rediscover them again and again. We give thanks to the earth below and the sky above and to the heart that unites us all. I give thanks to every single one of you that has donated to the show. If you want to do so, you can go to whyshamanismnow.com and uh, click the support button. My own website is lastmaskcenter.org, and you're welcome to purchase the Encyclopedia of Shamanism there. And next week, our show will be about energy exchange and why we must exchange energy for all that we do. So thank you all for joining me this week, and... uh, Go forth and be in direct relationship with your helping spirits. Thank you.